It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. Jerry, we have made it to the Griffey episode of the Wheelhouse Podcast. It is episode number 24. We'll be having a lot of good draft conversation here, We're talking about the West, talking about the rotation as well. And uh, Jerry, first of all, congratulations on finishing up uh, the draft this year. I know you guys had a lot of terrific selections. I, I have to imagine that this is a little bit more of a calming uh, a feeling right now around Safeco Field than it was uh, maybe a week or so ago. Yeah, you know, the, the, the meetings last so long. It's a, roughly about three weeks, close to a month, that our, our amateur scouting staff, much of our front office, is effectively just taken out of play. And we, we hole up down in the John Ellis Pavilion, and it becomes our draft war room for, for the month of May and into early June. And guys come in from all over the country. We talk through, I would say, 950 players or so <laughs> and uh and then put them all in order I, which is an incredible feat when you see it happen over time and really couldn't be happier with our process and the people that are involved scott hunter who runs our amateur scouting department tom allison who oversees the scouting in general and our supervisor group uh, uh, I, I hate to use the term go-getters but a really young and energetic uh, uh, scouting group that continues to churn talent particularly in the middle rounds, as, as you've seen by some of the trades we've been able to make and some of the pop-up prospects that have really started to litter our, our system. Well, we'll be talking more about the draft and other things as uh, this episode continues. I am in St. Pete. You are back inside Safeco Field. The Mariners are, once again, very playing very well, winners of six of their last seven. We're recording this in advance of Game 2 against the Tampa Bay Rays. They've won 10 of their last 13. The Mariners are in first place in the West. They have the third best record in all of baseball, not just in the American League. So really fun times in Mariners land we'll be getting more into over the course of this podcast. But, you know, Jerry, since this is the Griffey episode, episode number 24, I did have to look up your numbers against Junior. Why would you do such a thing? <laughs> uh, three, he was, Jerry, he was, he was three for seven against you. You walked him twice. You did punch him out, though. And you never gave up a home run to Ken Griffey Jr., which I think that in and of itself is a minor achievement. Well, I, I think one of the one of the pastimes of our front office group is, uh, you know, particularly our scouts as they visit each time we see a baseball dignitary, a Hall of Famer or a former all star. Uh, the 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 practice is to find out how Jerry did against that hitter. And, you know, it's a I, Joe Boringer, who's a special assistant in our front office setup in spring training this year. You know, Junior was in. He was visiting and and he looked at me and he said, Hey, how'd you do against Junior? I said, you know, I, off the top of my head, I think it went okay because I know there wasn't any big damage. And immediately he's got it up on baseball reference. He said, 
clearly you don't remember well because he's floating about a 1400 OPS against you. <laughs> and I said, but it all happened in small ways. But, you know, there's a, he, definitely one of the great hitters of all time. And I actually have found it rather comical and it's, it's become a, a bit of a thing with all the guys to, to look up what I did against the, the certain players from the nineties. And, and, uh, and, and usually it turns out to be not so favorable for me. <laughs> well, you are, you are the only active general manager who played in the major leagues, correct, Jerry? Uh, well, it, it depends what you think about active general managers. We've got presidents of baseball operation, guys like Billy Bean and Kenny Williams, who who did play major league careers, and you know it's it's a bit more, uh, I guess, title oriented. I guess technically I'm the only general manager, but I wouldn't say that I'm the only baseball operations head, so to speak. Okay, fair enough. I, I guess it depends on what this says on the business card, but. Uh, but there aren't many, I guess, is the point. Uh, bottom line, are guys in your position who actually played. So it is it is fun to look up the numbers from time to time. Well, uh, remi- a reminder to all that you can, of course, listen and subscribe through iTunes in the podcast app. And Colin's done fine work. He has hustled, as he always does, and uh, has gotten the podcast up on Google Play, on the Google Play Store, that is, and Stitcher for you Android users out there. So plenty of ways to add ca- to access the Wheelhouse podcast. Now, let's get into the draft a little bit, Jerry. Uh, your number one overall pick, Logan Gilbert, a college pitcher. I know he had a, a tremendous year in the Cape uh, pitching for Orleans. So what can you tell us that we maybe have not already heard about the newest number one draft pick for the Mariners? Uh, we're really excited about the pick. Obviously, we had a handful of scenarios that we thought could play out, and, and Logan was one of those scenarios. We thought, with the exception of Casey Mize at Auburn, Logan was one of the top two college pitchers in the country this year. He's polished. It's He's big and physical, a 6'5", 6'6", 225, throws the ball downhill, has the ability to ride the fastball over the barrel. What stands out most to us is his is his fastball command for for his age and stage and development to be able to command the fastball the way he does, uh, dominate the strike zone, led the country this year in strikeouts, which I think is a, it's an achievement. And and frankly, at a school that churned out a, a couple of really strong major league pitchers and Jacob Degrom and Corey Kluber, his three years at Stetson really ranks up there with with anybody and. You know, as you said, dominated in the Cape last summer, which is a, a real marker for us as a scouting staff against the best players in the country with wood bats, etc. And then really lit it up this spring for Stetson. I think went 11 and one, and and that really did all the things that that studs in college baseball are supposed to do. He has thrown a ton of innings, and you know our hope is that you know it, with we don't want to wish any ill will on Stetson that that they win the College World Series and and Logan comes out of it clean and healthy. And we won't pitch him a whole lot this summer, but we anticipate that as we get into 2019 and beyond, he's a pretty quick mover who will change the future of what our starting rotation looks like. With so many players, as we've talked about in previous episodes, both in the high school and college ranks, when you have a guy who you start to kind of zero in on, as it sounds like you and Scott did uh, before the draft began, aside from the film and the numbers and the spreadsheets, how much time, uh, probably Scott, does Scott have to actually interact one-on-one with a player like Logan? Because there are a number of players that you're looking at, and these guys don't have a ton of free time. Is that something that actually happens face-to-face interaction with these guys? 
It does. And, and ordinarily, it happens over the course of time. So, you know, dating back to the summer on the Cape, you get a chance to sit and meet with these kids. And, and in some instances, you get to meet them behind the screen, you know, because oftentimes when, when they're not pitching on a given day, they're sitting behind home plate doing a game chart or, or collecting velocities, et cetera. And, and you get a chance to, to get to know them a little bit. You also work through their representatives and, and setting up one-on-ones. And most schools around the country, particularly with the college programs, have what they call scout days. And you know, each of our area scouts and on occasion some of our supervisors will go visit these various campuses and for one day get a chance to sit down and effectively interview the, the players that we have the most interest in. And you know, on those days, all the, the draft-eligible players will, will be given access to Major League Scouts and and dating again back to last summer, Logan had made it very far up our our board, so to speak, and you know, that allowed us to get a a, a lot of one on one time with him and and a pretty good feel for who the human being was, which is an important thing for us when we're trying to we're deciding to make the type of commitment that we're making. We talked about him in in the Cape League. I spent a summer broadcasting in the Cape, and I. It was so much fun to see all the scouts clamoring, especially when you everybody knows in the Cape kind of who the guys are. All the players are very good, of course. You can make the case, and I think it's you can make it as a fact it's the top amateur Woodbat Summer League. Uh, but I would have to think, Jerry, that for a scout, going to the Cape, which you're on this tiny little island just away from Boston, the weather is picture perfect. Of course, everybody is spending thousands of dollars to vacation there. As a scout, you actually get flown there, put up there, you get paid to eat there, and you get to watch the best amateur talent in the country. Your farthest drive, I mean, from one end of the Cape to the other, is no more than 45-ish minutes or so, depending on tourist traffic. I mean, this is a scout's dream to go out and scout a kid, in this case, like Logan. You must love, if you're a scout, to get the assignment to go spend a few weeks on the Cape, right? Oh, it truly is. And, and a lot of our scouts, and particularly our scouting director, I mentioned Tom Allison, our VP of scouting, each of our supervisors, you know, the Cape coverage, they'll, they'll take 10 days, two weeks and rent a house on the Cape. They'll get up there for the two weeks. They'll see a game every night. They get to interview and meet the kids. And I know in most cases, the guys use it as a chance to reconnect with their family. So in, in addition to doing the work and, and digging in on the scouting side, they're able to take their wives, their children, get up there and use it as kind of a, a vacation of sorts during the day and, and work in the evening. Well, I would definitely recommend for any baseball enthusiast, I mean like hardcore enthusiast, you want a summer vacation and you want to see baseball like you haven't seen it before, go out to the Cape for a week. Heck, rent a house, be like a big league scout. and Because uh, the games are free. It's the most. It's it's got to be Jerry. Don't you think? Kind of the some of the purest baseball when it comes to the fact that the players aren't paid. There's no cover. There's no cost to get into the game. It's some of the best talent you'll ever see, and it's you're enjoying a, a Cape Cod night watching some uh, terrific college baseball. It's a ton of fun. Oh, it, sign me up. I, I, <laughs> even in today's time, I, it, you can't get tired of watching baseball and that quality on the Cape, even the postseason in college baseball. It's it's so much fun to watch when the kids are energized, they want to play for something bigger than themselves, and they're not in that moment driven by anything more than playing for and with the guy next to them and, and to, I, I guess, to make their school proud. How about your 
Showers looks like just a tremendous athlete, an outfielder from Louisville, had a 47-game on-base streak, swiped nearly 40 bags. So what can you tell us about Josh Stowers? I, you hit on it in, in the first take is tremendous athlete. We thought one of the best athletes in this draft, and you know, on, a, on an 80 scale, we've got him as a 70 runner. Reminds me a lot of a former teammate of mine in Colorado by the name of Eric Young, uh, who was a kind of power-packed athlete, had those same types of explosive skills, I believe led the National League in stolen bases once upon a time. And, you know, while Eric played second base and Josh played center field, they had that same kind of offensive skill set and athletic package. That's what we saw in Josh Stowers. And and it's a it it is a 70 run tool. He's got well advanced on base skills, really sprays the ball line to line with a short, clean stroke. He's got some lift. We think he's going to work into some power that uh, that might not have shown up in its full regalia in college. But even that, he he does slug at the level he's playing. And, you know, this is a, it's a strong, athletic kid who we feel like is just getting into his baseball skill set and, you know, profiles as a center fielder, top-of-the-order hitter, and not a top-of-the-order hitter in, in the line of, of – late singles hitting run around type it's it is there's some impact to the athlete here and we're really excited to add him to the system and you know with what we've got going on projecting athletic outfielders up and down our system he fits right in the the mix and what we're trying to do well we know that you drafted a ton of college guys this year jerry and i think the reason behind that seems like it would be pretty clear but would love to hear your reason as to why exactly so many picks coming from the college ranks as opposed to the high school ranks you know, it's funny, at, at the, the draft, one of my bylines as we head into every draft year is don't force it. Take what the draft gives you. And, you know, it's a, you, can, you can sometimes create a game plan that, that makes sense, and then it gets taken off the rails in the second round, and you start to panic. Uh, you know, for those who have ever taken part in a fantasy football routine, it, it's, uh, it's the moment when somebody takes the kicker or the defense and everybody else starts to panic, like, oh, my gosh, we have to get the kicker in the defense. There's going to be run on shortstops from Carlos Beltran, Puerto Rican Academy. The, the, these, these things do happen uh, it, during the course of a draft, and we have to remain disciplined. We actually went into this draft with the idea that we were going to be more aggressive with the prep class this year than we would be with the collegiate class. Unfortunately, the other 29 teams didn't really help us. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we had we had to adjust along the way. And, you know, all the way through, we had our eye on the most talented player that we could access in that moment. And, you know, the, the two players that we selected in the first two picks were exactly the players that we wanted. And... You know, after that, you adjust as the draft feeds you, so to speak. And, and it just worked out that we were maybe heavier in, in college than we would be in high school. And I say that, but, the you know, we were able to grab a couple of high upside high school kids after the 10th round. And through the mid rounds, you know, I'm what, what I'll call like that fifth to 10th round in a draft. You make your hay in those rounds drafting college players, the college, the polished college guys, the, the relievers with with two pitches, the starters who can command multiple pitches, the guys who have played at big schools and had success. And they generally move through a system and they get to the big leagues and they show up as solid role players. And every now and then their ceiling is a little higher than that. But that's how you build a foundation in a system. 
and in the top 100 picks, you're always going for the best talent available. And that's what we felt like Logan Gilbert and Josh Dowers represented. Unfortunately, we weren't able to tap as deep into the prep class as we would have liked in the rounds that followed. But we were happy with the upside we achieved, and we really liked the, the overall depth of the class we were able to draft. I, I think I've referenced it on the podcast before that a couple of years ago when you invited uh, many of us into the war room, prior to your first pick I was so excited Jerry and this was like this was a dream come true to be right there when the pick was made and as I've said before Jerry it was one of the most disappointing things I've ever been through because the room was so calm Jerry there was no frantic there was there was no grand announcement all of a sudden the Mariners had drafted Kyle Lewis and it was just kind of like handshakes and high fives I was expecting this a Wall Street type of feel to it New York Stock Exchange uh, a lot of a lot of sweat a lot of panic and there was none of that Jerry was it was it the same this year did did somebody you know did somebody spill a soda on a laptop was there some frantic movement or was it all just kind of I mean hey this is the guy he, he came right to us this is who we wanted was it calm as usual well, you know, usually we the chaos occurs before we open the curtains. <laughs> but it, when we're all, <laughs> when everybody's in a panic running around like they're going to pick our pocket here, but for the most part and again within the top 100 picks since the new collective bargaining agreement was put in place in 2012 and we have been given access or the ability to actually talk to player representatives and and connect with the kids in the draft before selecting them. It has been a lot less drama leading up to your pick. And oftentimes, like in this instance, with the 14th pick, we select Logan Gilbert. We were quite aware by the time the fifth or sixth pick was made that Logan Gilbert was going to be a Mariner because everybody in front of us had now started to situate themselves and make their deals with given players. And, and you know, we were, we were in communication with Logan Gilbert's camp. We had an understanding that, that, uh, that he was going to get to our pick or understood that he was going to get to our pick, and we committed to taking him. Therefore, it's a little bit anticlimactic when we make the call, but you still get the golf clap and the handshakes. And, you know, <laughs> th- that being said, I, I do think that the, the coolest moment is looking at the area scout on the in the instance where the area scout or the supervisor is in the room and calling out Logan Gilbert or Kyle Lewis or Evan White whichever the pick might be Josh Stowers and when you call out that pick and you see the look on that scout's face the the work that they put in the the days away from their family the the trucking back and forth to whatever ballpark they had to get to and and really invest in that kid and it's rewarded with bringing it's bringing a young athlete into the pro game and and then they get to watch him grow it, that's the coolest part it, it truly is and and then Scott Hunter being able to pick up the phone and call each of the players and welcome to the Mariners. And, and I'll give Scott credit, and this is not common among all scouting directors, but Scotty picks up the phone and he calls every one of those 40 selections after the selection is made. And, you know, so that the first person they hear from with the Mariners is the scouting director and, and they know how, how much it means to this organization that they're now part of it. Oh, that is very cool. What a great touch by Scott. Well, we'll focus our attention now on the big league club. And as mentioned, the Mariners continue to be in first place in the American League of West, the third best record in the majors. Jerry, it has been such a joy to be able to watch this team night in and night out. 
And it's incredible the position that Scott Service and the Mariners have put themselves in after a really strong month of April, an equally strong month of May. And now when the real beef of the schedule starts to kick in, the Mariners are in this just tremendous position. We knew the schedule would get harder. The Mariners are kind of in the midst of that right now after that series split in Houston. Uh, what's it been like for you watching this ball club, uh, especially as of late, once they have taken over the spot, top spot in the division? Uh, really, it's been a joy. Uh, and, and I say that from opening day forward. Th- these guys, ha- they've fought, they've beaten through adversity, they're energetic. Every night they come up with a new way to win a game or, or really come back when it looks like maybe it's not clicking on a given night. Thrilled with the stability that our starters have provided us night after night, and you know, not the least of which was last night, Mike Leake pitching into the ninth, and and the depth that we've shown one through twenty-five, and even beyond on the roster, I think has taken some by surprise. But that's that is kind of what we thought we had, and you know, while I wouldn't have anticipated would be on a hundred-plus win pace, I we did believe that we were a contending club, and you know, while we might be playing what many have cited as the the softer portion of our schedule during the month of May. We've we've over the course of the two plus months of this season, we've already faced most of the best, I guess, not named Red Sox or Yankees, most of the best pitchers in the American League. We've seen the Coles and the Charlie Mortons and the Carrascos and the Klubers in some cases, multiple times, the Michael Fulmers. And, you know, if you the Blake Snells, and I will stop there and say, oh, my gosh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, the Chris Archers, we, we've seen all these guys and it's yeah, we somehow we've towed up and we've done our thing. And, and along the way, the James Paxton's and the Marco Gonzalez's have have taken their place uh, among the, the, the leaders, so to speak, and in American League starting pitching and. And our hitters find a way to grind it out, whether it be with a solo homer to, to tie a game or a rally where we don't hit a ball out of the infield. It's it's kind of reminiscent of, of 1980s National League baseball where we, we put it in play, we run around, we, we probably have sacrificed bunted more this year than, than I've ever had a team sacrifice in my executive career. <laughs> but we're doing it at the right time and for the right reasons with the right players. And it's working. I, I think Scott has done a phenomenal job in keeping this group together through adversity. And, and we're not going to stop. There's a, we will face more adversity. We will face more adversity today. Actually, we'll, we'll lose a couple more players to the disabled list. But whereas last year or in years past, that would have been an ominous thing. This team just keeps rolling with the punches and they find a way to get off the mat. Okay, Jerry, sounds like some uh, unfortunate news. Can you tell us more about the DL situation with the Mariners? Yeah, today we're going to lose a pair of our relievers. You know, Juan Nicasio is going to go to the DL with a, an issue with his knee and you know some, some of a cartilage issue with his knee. We've seen some up and downs from Juan. I thought, unfortunately, he got what we'll call babipped to, into submission the, the other night in Houston. Prior to that, his last six or eight outings had just been absolutely dominant. Didn't feel right when he came off the mound, and and uh, you know we brought him in. He is going to need some time down with a knee issue. We don't anticipate that being a long stay, more the ten day variety than the than the elongated variety. And Dan Altavilla is is combating a little bit of an elbow uh, discomfort. He threw the other night in Houston, and when we arrived in Tampa, you know came in and made mention, and he will make his way back to Seattle and, and visit with our docs and and get a good sense for where he's at, and and we'll take it day by day from there. And 
you know, in their places, we'll we'll add Daniel Vogelbach back to the roster and and get a little uh, entertainment and a little bop in there. Uh, we'll also add Michael Morin, who we have not seen yet this year, but he's having an excellent year for for the Rainiers down in Tacoma. Was in spring training with us and has three plus years of major league service, pitching with the Angels, Royals, and and feel like he has uh, right now pitched very well and deserves the opportunity to step in and. and in addition, we, we are starting to get healthier in other areas. We anticipate getting Nick Vincent back next week. Uh, we've also seen the return of Nick Rumbelow after a long layoff, and, and all I guess all signs are trending in the right direction for Nick as, a, as an alternative for us at the big league level and the not-too-distant future as well. Well, it's certainly disappointing news on Nicasio and Altavilla. Uh, however, when you look at the moves that you're making in their place, another reliever and then the position player you mentioned, Vogelback, do you, do you feel more comfortable – going a man lighter in the bullpen simply because, and we've mentioned on the broadcast the last couple of nights, your rotation, at last look, the fifth most innings of the major leagues, they have really given Scott some tremendous length. Is that a a major reason why you feel okay about that move? Yeah, absolutely. And I think they have, from really from the start, they've been very good about eating up the innings, particularly since mid-April. And that's what this rotation was designed to do. They're doing an even better job of it than we could have ever hoped. And, you know, it's uh, so many of them have stepped up. And this decision, the idea of bringing back one bat and one arm in place of two arms, was more geared toward we have not, Ruenis Elias has not thrown in, in a week plus now. Uh, he provides the length in the bullpen. Let's call, you know, Chase and Bradford and Ryan Cook have been used sparingly. And a lot of these one-run games that we've played, even James Pazos has not been overworked in any way. A lot of these one-run wins that we've we've eked out, so to speak, have been finished by the same three guys, Nicasio and Colome and Diaz. And even they, over the course of the last four or five days, haven't worked a great deal. And most of that is due to the fact that our, our starting rotation has given us incredible length. And you know that won't be a, a, a constant. We will have to find ways to win games where our relievers are in there in the fifth and the sixth. But for the time being, we thought it best to go with the extra bat and then let it play out until early next week when we add Nick Vincent. And then we'll determine whether we stick with the the extra batter go back to the extra arm well we were talking about the the schedule for the mariners and and by the way if you look at just simply winning percentage versus teams above 500 this year the mariners have the fourth best winning percentage so all this talk that we've had and it's i think i think it's for good reason about the schedule getting more difficult it's not as though the mariners have played nothing but softies all season long only the Yankees have the highest, a higher winning percentage against teams at 500 or above in the league. Uh, but Jerry, when when you look at the schedule that the Mariners are now in the midst of, right, the split against the Astros, four here in Tampa, and now Angels, Red Sox for seven at home. The Mariners will go on the road, face the Red Sox again and the Yankees. Uh, kind of what we have been talking about is from a a fan's point of view, if you could go 500 over that stretch with the line of credit that your ball club has built up over the first two months of the season, uh, two months and change, really, you would just feel terrific about that. Are you of kind of the same mindset? Obviously, you'd like to win all the games, but against that caliber of competition, especially with a number of those games going on the road, is that something that, as a general manager, you kind of have your sights set on as well? 
Yeah, you can't help but think it in, in terms more like a planner, so to speak. But you also can't take away the competitive edge of wanting to win every single game. I, it, it reminds me of a funny story. I, this my first opportunity as a general manager. I was uh, I was the interim general manager for the Arizona Diamondbacks in the summer of 2010, and uh, on the day that I was put in position to to run the club from a baseball operations perspective. Kirk Gibson was was appointed the interim manager at the time and then obviously became the permanent manager uh, the following year. But Gibby and I, we were we were we, we got along very well. We talked really nonstop every day about the things that we wanted to do, how this could be a, a pivot point for the organization and growing forward. And one day we were flying in to, to play the Mets. And that was my first trip into New York as a general manager. And, and as I may have mentioned once or twice on, on this podcast, I grew up a Mets fan. <laughs> and uh, we were flying in to play the Mets. And we had just acquired a, a right-hand pitcher by the name of Daniel Hudson, who would then go on to win the Rookie of the Month, I believe, in two consecutive months in, in uh, July and August of 2010. And we're flying in and... and coming over Shea Stadium and we see the ballpark below us and and uh, or, or City Field, I should say. And we see the ballpark below us as we're getting ready to land at LaGuardia. And I turned around to Gibby and I said, you know, for whatever it's worth, I always find it a little extra uh, pleasurable to beat the Mets. And, and Gibby turns around to me and deadpan looked daggers right through me. I thought he was actually going to punch me. He said, for the record, I like beating them all. <laughs> and, you know, that, that, that's the, the, the competitor in you. I, you want to believe that you're going to win every game you play. But logically, if you can play 500 on the road, especially after you've banked a lot of wins, and, and regardless of who you're playing, you're, you're okay. You, you put yourself in a good position. But I think this team, with the kind of bullpen that I believe that we, we've – now started to put together and and the the grit that this team has shown they believe in themselves and and you know while I would never be disappointed by by that kind of performance over the month and and the type of schedule we have I believe that this team has higher expectations than that well I can certainly understand that and it's uh certainly off to a terrific start on this stretch of games for the Mariners and the pitching has been an absolute constant Jerry especially in the rotation we saw that last night game one from the trop Mike Leake. You know, when we have done previous episodes this year, Jerry, we have talked about Leake with kind of the context of Mike's trying to get it rolling, right? He's trying to find that momentum. He'd have a really strong start, then would regress for a start, then get back to it. It was a little bit more inconsistent. But now, like what feels like the entire rotation, Leak is in an absolute groove. What's it been like for you watching Leak? I look oh, really a lot more like what we saw him last year, late in the summer, once he came over from St. Louis. Well, you knew you'd get Mike Leake going, and, and it was only a matter of time because that's effectively who he's been and who he's always been. He's, he's athletic. He's, he's healthy. He throws the ball to a location. I think last night went, what, he got to 140 hitters faced without issuing a walk before walking C.J. Crone, which brought to mind, the, uh, I believe there was a run of, of issues or, or, or hitters where Greg Maddox had not walked a hitter in some crazy length of time. And the, the hitter that he walked was a right-hand pitcher named Joey Hamilton uh, to break his string, which I think was 60-plus innings of not walking anybody. Uh, you know, it's Mike has, has achieved this with kind of 
pinpoint location. The command of his pitches has been great. I think he found his rhythm and his his delivery looks right. He's online. He's confident. And we don't have a, a pitcher who competes any more than Mike Leake does. He's uh, truly one of the most competitive guys you're ever going to be around. And when he takes that ball, his intent is to be walking off the mound, hugging the catcher at the end of the game. And there aren't a lot of guys that are wired that way anymore, but Mike is one of them. And, and I'm glad he got it going because when he's throwing the, the innings that he's throwing, we're a better team. And, and I think he has been money in regard to working ahead in counts, getting them to hit it on the ground, keeping the ball in the ballpark, and, and giving us a chance to win night after night, and it's working. Well, one of the other guys, too, he will go tonight, Marco Gonzalez. He has been such a joy to watch. Had a terrific start his last time out against these Rays. That was Saturday night at Safeco Field. I, I had a really interesting conversation with Marco, like most of them with Marco, happened to be the other day, Jerry. And I'm curious your thoughts on this. I, I was basically just asking him if this is the most fun he has had since college because we know he's the most decorated pitcher to ever come out of Gonzaga, first-round draft pick. And then in terms of his pro career – uh, in the major leagues, it was shortened by Tommy John. Now he is certainly back. But he is now at a point where it kind of feels like, Jerry, he hasn't been before, right? He is really contributing to a team with playoff aspirations for the first time in his career. And he was telling me about when when he was in college, Jerry, how he was he was the guy, right? He was the man, not only in his on his team, but really the man in his conference in a lot of ways. And he kind of had this attitude of nobody's getting to me anytime I'm up on the mound. And then once he got into pro ball in the minors with the Cardinals, for whatever reason, he said he kind of developed this mentality of I'm the lefty who throws changeups and I'm just really hoping that I can make and stay on a team. I mean, this is night and day uh, mentality for Marco Gonzalez. And now he is most certainly back to being the guy who is saying, I'm the master of this mound. Uh, I'm not just going to flip some changeups up there and hope that I can get through five innings and stay on this team. And he credited, among other people, James Paxton as a guy who has really helped him mentally go up on the, on the mound and kind of have the mindset of with each pitch, I'm going to dominate and not have to nibble so much. I, I just found that very interesting, this change that we've seen in Marco, uh, maybe from even April to the start of the month of May to right now, it's been really a lot of fun to watch. And if I could pinpoint it, that it would have been the April start that he made against Houston, where I believe he struck out eight. It, he had dominant stuff, and somehow it turned into a short outing and and didn't need to be. And, and I believe there was a moment after that outing that, that James got with Marco and, and, uh, and had a chat with him. And... What that does to me, and this is from player development to your major league development to to putting together a team, your best coach is often yourself. Your next best coach is your teammate. Uh, They're there with you every day. They are the most credible voice in the room because they're your peers. You know, you respect those guys. And in the case of a James Paxton who's pulling the sled, you look up to him and you know, I think that's a, that's a, a really good thing to happen between teammates or among them. But, I mean, you talked about Marco as far back as Gonzaga. If you go back even further, you know, Marco is the only pitcher in the history of the state of Colorado to have pitched in and won four consecutive state championship games. And then he went to Gonzaga and became an All-American, as you said, the man in that conference, and and, and then went on into pro ball and, and 
really shot through in about 150 innings, blew through the minor leagues, and was pitching on a St. Louis Cardinals postseason team at the age of 22. And and then he got hurt and had Tommy John, and, and he's not the only player that ever had to deal with that. And he's he's done a great job of coming back from it. And and I'm glad that Marco remembered that he's good. Uh, you know, he was good in high school. He was good in college. He was good in the minor leagues. And he was good once he returned from his Tommy John as, as a part of the Memphis club in AAA last year. We didn't forget he was good. We took a little bit of a gamble that he would be good again. And and right now we're all being rewarded for that because he's done a great job for us. It's been a ton of fun to watch. We can't wait to see him up on the mound tonight in Game 2 against the Tampa Bay Rays. Well, Jerry, we have we have reached what has become my favorite segment of the Wheelhouse podcast, Stump JD. And I have, I have a topical question, which I hope proves to be more of a hurdle for you this time. And it's very topical because of the draft. Jerry, which number one overall pick has played in the most major league games? Number one overall pick has played in the most major league games. Whew, that is a tough one. I am going to go with Chipper Jones. I can't believe I got you, Jerry. <sighs> finally, finally, after three of these, Harold Baines. Jerry. Uh, Harold Baines. Yeah, uh, I, I'm, I'm devastated right now. Harold Baines. Well, but, I'm glad I can do that to you. I'm, I feel very good about that, actually. I'll bring it up to the fellas and, and make sure that they are aware that he played more innings than any one won, and, and I'm sure then it will turn into what did I do against Harold Baines. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, Chipper is a great guess, and that's who I would have guessed too. Uh, Chipper played in 2,499 games, which yeah, now I say that, that's really a shame he couldn't have played in one more, right, just to kind of even that up. Uh, 2,499 games for Chipper. Meanwhile, for Baines, 2,830 games over the span of 22 years. Phenomenal for career. Banks. Very quiet career. Yeah, number one overall pick in 77. And I think the other uh, great piece of trivia about Harold Baines, and Jerry, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that you remember this, uh, he had his number retired by the White Sox when he was still an active player. Which is spectacular. And, and I believe Harold Baines, in, in what is a great old baseball story, uh, Bill Veck, the, the owner of the Chicago White Sox for, for many, many years, they, they had their scouts apparently locked in on Harold Baines at the age of 12 and, and, and were scouting Harold at the age of 12. And as legend has it, they conveniently wound up with the first pick in the draft when Harold was, was uh, draft eligible. And, and he became a, a really a White Sox legend and had a great career that – for many people, flies under the radar. But you go look at the Herald, the totals that Harold put together over the years, and it was a pretty phenomenal run. That's incredible coincidence, having the number one overall pick with scouting him at 12. Uh, number retired, by the way, in 89. He retired in 2001. So <laughs> it wasn't like uh, it, like it was going to happen the next day uh, that he would retire. Pretty incredible stuff. My backup, by the way, because I thought, of course, I thought you would get it right, uh, and I'll be forever disappointed that you didn't. My backup was who was the which Hall of Famer was the number three overall pick in 1977. Which Hall of Famer was the number three overall pick in 1977? 
Paul taken by the, You Okay, so you got the backup question. Very nicely done. Very nicely done. Now, the Mariners, by the way, drafted the late, great Dave Henderson in the first round that year, 26th overall. Well, uh, good stuff uh, for Stump JD. And let's, uh, O'Keefe, let's put this up on the uh, whiteboard there in the uh, Legends room. Uh, DePoto, two, Goldsmith, one. <laughs> feel pretty good about that. Uh, we'll get to some listener questions, Jerry. As always, you can send us your questions, the wheelhouse at mariners.com. David chimes in and would like to know with the recent big league draft in the books, it's a very important question. From a recent interview, Jerry, he says that uh, you mentioned that you value character with your draft picks. You've already mentioned that in this podcast today. Like other teams, he assumes that you value the five tools, how they project, uh, handedness, all those things. But how much do the Mariners value a quality baseball name? I think this is a great question. In the draft war room, Jerry, while scouts are debating, matching maybe this player against that, does having a tremendous name give a slight edge to that player? Um, Cash Gladfelter, Jerry, as an example? Would you consider, uh, if it was a flip of the coin, maybe maybe a Geo Dingkong? on the Mariners' radar, who was taken in the 30th round by the Oakland A's? I mean, this has to be part of it, right? A great name? There's no question it is. As a matter of fact, I, I once worked with with a gal in in Anaheim by the name of Kathy Mayer, and Kathy would, would choose a handful of players. She had no idea what their tools were. Kathy read off our draft picks and, and administratively kept – things together for us and she would have a pool of players that simply due to their name would be on her hot list and we would occasionally <laughs> take one just to make sure that that she, she achieved what she wanted to and some I mean through the years some great names that that come through the draft and or even just in baseball history and and they're burned on your brain I, I, my all-time favorite name in, in baseball history was uh and it was a a a terribly early death to a very short career, but a, a player by the name of Pickles Dillhofer. And absolutely, yeah. It, why wouldn't you have a great respect for for a guy who's running around with the name Pickles and and clearly one of the best players in the world in his time? But uh, baseball names are so fun, and the nicknames are so fun as you go through the years. Whatever we drafted forty players, we're going to sign thirty some of them before it's said and done, and they'll enter our system. And whatever their given name when they walk through that door, none of them will ever be known by that name again. They will they will have a nickname within hours, or somebody will throw a Y on the end of their name, and 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 they will forever have some kind of a shortened version of who they are. And and uh, it's it's part of the nuance or fun of baseball. Well, it's even better when you can combine a great name with family heritage, because I was looking through an article of great names in this year's draft. Of course, some of them are funny, and then some of the names are just very powerful, like this one, Cannon King. And I thought, I got I to gotta know more about Cannon King, who was taken in the 38th round by the White Sox. He's the son of Larry King. And apparently the, <laughs> apparently the White Sox drafted his brother, Chance King, last year in the 39th round. So uh, Cannon King is a two-for-one in my book. Uh, but pretty pretty funny that the White Sox drafted both sons of Larry King in consecutive years. I mean, did, did you know that Larry King's son uh, was draft eligible? 
I did not know that, but in the world of famous, uh, maybe pop culture names, so this dates back a few years. I was I was with the Arizona Diamondbacks, and and as you may or may not be aware, on MLB.com, when we are announcing the picks as we get into the the latter stages of the draft, if you are relative to anyone in baseball, a former player, an executive, you, you will it will be announced. Colin O'Keefe, the the Seattle Mariners select Colin O'Keefe, right hand pitcher, University of Washington. Colin is the son of the the great 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 grandson of Hall of Famer Tim O'Keefe. You know Tim Keefe. Uh, we. We will often make those types of proclamations. Well, this this dates back a handful of years, but one of our scouts who was reading off the names when we were with Arizona, we drafted an outfielder from uh, from Riverside, from uh, UC Riverside. His name was Michael Herr, and you know Tim read off the name and very seriously. He said, "With the X selection, the Arizona Diamondbacks select outfielder Michael Herr." University of California, Riverside. Michael is the son of Ben Hur, which, which was true. His dad's name was Ben Hur. And, and usually there'll be a golf clap because everybody wants to celebrate the name of the baseball person who's being alluded to. And there was just a deadly silence because there wasn't a single person on the line who recalled Ben Hur. <laughs> and, and meanwhile, I was in tears. I thought it was the funniest thing that we just, <laughs> we just cited Ben Hur. <laughs> that is a good one. Well, our uh, final question comes from Mike, uh, who's not only a huge Mariners fan, but Jerry's also a big soccer fan as well. And with that in mind, he loves hearing that you have visited uh, some EPL teams. He has two questions. Thinking about the time you've spent with said teams, what have you learned from their system that you have helped to apply to the Mariners? And on the flip side, what do you think soccer teams uh, could learn from baseball organizations? On the, I don't know on the the latter part of that. Like what they most of the various sport sporting teams that we visited, whether they be soccer, basketball, football, etc. You know, we in baseball tend to be on the cutting edge in regard to our use of analytics, metrics, and and the way we collect the data. The what I've learned, especially from the soccer clubs that we've had a chance to spend time with, are the different ways to collect. Uh, the bio data uh, or you know analyze what the player is offering us in terms of his his bio analysis and and I think that's that that's the most valuable lesson or one of the things that we've learned from the various soccer clubs is is how to track the way the athlete is behaving the physiological uh, portion of the exercise that in baseball for really for decade after decade, it's not something we ever tracked. We are still very much in the infant phases in baseball of, of wrapping our head around it and and really collaborating with our athletes on, on trying to use that data to allow them to get better rest, to be better prepared to play and things of that nature. In that regard, I think the the world-class soccer clubs, the biggest soccer clubs in the world, including right here with the Sounders, that they are eons ahead of baseball in in those applications and gathering and what they get from us is maybe a little bit more of an understanding for how to apply the analytics of the games very interesting that's cool stuff well jerry we'll finish up by going around the horn the mariners are coming back home beginning on monday seven day homestand seven games seven days really good homestand coming up angels and red sox monday and tuesday 
Our Mariners value games presented by BECU. So view and bleacher seats for only 15 bucks. Main and club level seats for only $30. Wednesday's a day game. Uh, so we've got a Mariners matinee at Safeco Field. Always a nice chance to get out and see some day baseball at the ballpark. And then Thursday night, the four-game series against the Red Sox begin. First of five fireworks nights will be on Friday, presented by T-Mobile and moving 92.5. I love the fireworks games. Saturday will be an earlier start time, 5.15, because of a nationally televised game on Fox. And then, of course, Sunday, Father's Day. First 10,000 fans taking home Mariners barbecue glove, courtesy of EQC. Jerry, the Mariners are in first place. The podcast is a ton of fun. Thank you for doing this. And it's uh, been great talking to you about uh, the draft and all the good stuff happening with the Mariners and everything else. Thanks for the time, man. I look forward to the next one. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey.